How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. We're privileged to have on the broadcast today Dr. E. Calvin Beisner, a.k.a. Cal. He's taught as a professor of interdisciplinary studies at Covenant College from 1992 to 2000, also as a historical theology and social ethics professor at Knox Theological Seminary for eight years from 2000 to 2008. He served on the staff of Holy Trinity Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, for a few years, and then he began devoting full-time work to the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. He is the president and founder of the Cornwall Alliance. He earned a BA from the University of Southern California, an MA in economics from International College, and a PhD in history focusing on the political theology and ethics of the Scottish Covenanteers from the University of St. Andrews. No small accomplishment. He's the author of over a dozen books and growing about 30-some published articles and journals, newspapers, online periodicals. He speaks at colleges, churches, and conferences. And in 2014, the Heritage Foundation awarded him with the Outstanding Spokesman for Faith, science, and stewardship. We've had Cal before on the broadcast during our climate change interviews, which got tremendous response from you. We appreciate that. So anyway, we're thrilled and glad to have Cal talk about two very important and controversial issues today on the broadcast. Cal, thank you for being on the program. Thank you very much for having me back. It's a lot of fun. Well, good. That means I can get you back again. That's what I just took that to mean. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So, Cal, we are facing a very interesting time with our current election. And some of the sub-issues that have stemmed out of this, let's talk about two categories in this time together. One is the pro-life movement and some of your thoughts on that. And then, of course, your expertise really is a lot more broad than just the Cornwall Alliance for Stewardship of Creation. And I want to hear from you about social justice because this has become such a lightning rod in our vocabulary and social media. And it's not well thought through. But first of all, let's talk about, because you've written, I'm going to read from some of your contributions, recently a group calling itself Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden, close quote, spearheaded by longtime leaders of the evangelical left, Ronald Sider and Richard Mao released a statement that begins, quote, as pro-life evangelicals, we disagree with Vice President Biden and the Democratic platform on the issue of abortion, but we believe a biblically shaped commitment to the sanctity of human life compels us to a consistent ethic of life that affirms the sanctity of human life from beginning to end. Now, I read that one way, but you're the expert, so I want you to weigh in and explain to us what we're hearing in this nuanced conversation. 
Well, of course, from the very start, I would say, yes, we should definitely value human life from conception till natural death for every human being. We should recognize it as sacred from conception until death. And so, you know, I would have a for-life ethic for all human beings. But what's happening here is that we're using, or they, Drs. Sider and Mao, who wrote this article and introduced the statement of so-called pro-life evangelicals for Biden, what they're doing is they're sort of burying some very, very important distinctions. If I tell you that I favor human life and I want to promote human life, I want to protect human life from conception until natural death, and then I tell you that it is just as important to protect human life by raising people's income from, say, $20,000 a year to $30,000 a year, as it is to protect human life by preventing abortions, your eyebrows should go up. (laughs) And there's a reason why your eyebrows should go up. For somebody with income equivalent to, say, $20,000 per year, that person is not likely to starve to death. That person is not likely to die of some other cause related to his low income. And the improvement of income from twenty dollars to $30,000 per year is not likely to make an enormous amount of difference in how long that person lives. And when that person does die, even if it's related to her poverty, her death will not have been the consequence of an intentional attack by somebody else. Hmm. It will be a consequence of a variety of different factors that no one intended as leading to her death. By contrast, in abortion, every successful procedure ends in the intentional killing of a human being. Now, that's a pretty important ethical distinction. We all are used to distinguishing, for example, between, say, first-degree murder, where you have to prove that the assailant had actually planned it out in advance, fully intended to kill the victim, and you know did it understanding what he was doing, that he wasn't impaired by insanity or something like that. We distinguish first-degree murder, which is intentionally, unjustly killing a human being, Mm. from, say, manslaughter, in which a person's negligence, maybe he was driving carelessly, perhaps he was driving drunk, and that leads to an accident in which someone dies. Well, we call that manslaughter, but we don't call it first-degree murder. And the reason is that there's the difference in intentionality. There's a very significant difference in intentionality. And then we distinguish those from completely accidental harm. The Bible illustrates this at one point in the Pentateuch, where part of biblical law says, if two men are out chopping wood and the head flies off the axe used by one of those men and it hits the other man in the head, there's to be no penalty because there was no intention there. And we don't know that there was any negligence. This was a pure accident. So we all understand the ethical distinction between intentional harms and accidental harms on the one hand. And we also understand the difference, the ethical distinction 
between a human death on the one hand and some human lack of prosperity or something like that on the other hand. And unfortunately, when the authors of this pro-life evangelicals for Biden statement try to equate their concerns about poverty or climate change or smoking or racism, etc., all of which do indeed constitute some risk of death, they're failing to make those two distinctions between intentional versus unintentional harm and between actual death, killing on the one hand, and perhaps a reduction in health on the other hand. When I read some of these arguments, and I don't know if you and I have talked about this before or not, but I've referred to it many times as, you know, this is not our father's Oldsmobile, meaning that when you and I were younger, the sanctity of life and the protection of a heterosexual monogamous marriage, those were sort of the two whetstones for conservatives. And I don't want to just simply yes. say Republicans, but for conservatives, for men and women who believed in Scripture, they thought at the moment of conception, when that ovum and sperm hit, everything there, hair color, eye color, height, whether you're going to have diabetes, it's all there. Time and nourishment yeah. is all that's required. That is the image of God. And therefore, the removal of or evacuation of or dismemberment of is killing a human being, an unborn human being. And the marriage was one man, one woman for life. Now, we lost those. We lost them in different ways. But when I go to the poll as a Christian, well, you know, I lost those two battles. So we have, quote, fought, close quote, to try to overturn, try to protect, try to lessen. And now... It seems to me, Cal, and help me out here, moral relativism has become so passe yes. that when we jump from abortion or pro-choice and then we jump over to, well, and we'll get to this more, social justice or equality or redistribution of wealth, I'm shaking my head going, why can't we see there's a difference here? Now, you're differentiating one as natural consequence, if I'm not stating you incorrectly, one's a choice. And I'm asking the question, well, moral relativism has so won the day that it's a reductionist theology. It doesn't matter anymore. Help me if I'm wrong here. No, I think you're absolutely right. When we, for example, begin to relativize questions of life and death so that they become essentially on an equal footing with questions of health or prosperity or position in society and so on, we have lost a really significant distinction, and we're on a slope toward further relativizing. We saw that, for example, in the move to relativize marriage, first by just simply accepting what were called same-sex unions, and nobody was calling them marriages, but you know they had a whole lot of similarities. And then people decided, well, since we're allowing all these similarities, we might as well call it marriage too, although of course the Bible would never have called it marriage. So then we acknowledge same-sex so-called marriage. The next step is clearly going to be polyamory, that is so-called marriages that consist of more than two people. Well, and, and that's you might to interrupt, that's happening polygamy. in some areas. It's going on now. Yeah. And so was so-called homosexual marriage as well, same-sex marriage. 
before it became legally recognized. And so what we're headed for now is bit by bit, we will legally recognize polygamy or polyandry as well. Similarly, when it comes to abortion, we saw a similar slope happen. Early on, the arguments in favor of removing restrictions on abortion said, well, what we want to do is we want to permit abortion in really difficult cases where, say, the mother's life is endangered or where she's been impregnated by rape or by incest, things like that. And that opened the door because it said, okay, in those cases, it's okay to kill a human being. Then later, it expanded to the point where today, under Roe versus Wade, in every state of America, it is legal for a woman with the help of a doctor, let's not forget there, to kill the baby in the womb at any moment up to live birth. And indeed, in many, many more places, more and more places, we're now seeing people arguing for, okay, and if this child is not wanted, well, we can kill the child after it's born as well. So the slide happens when you take away the absolutes that are a part of biblical ethics. I've interviewed dear friends in recent weeks who we are on completely different sides of these issues, and you're going to hear things like love and compassion and justice and income redistribution. I had a friend from California with me just recently, and he's a firm believer in income redistribution. And I go, well, once you leave a free market economy, wealth redistribution does not last very long. And it's just hard to see. And you and I, again, we're of an age where we've watched these things sort of frog in the kettle. But now we're shaking our head going, you can jettison all these issues of the sanctity of life beginning at the moment of conception. How in the world did we get to the point where that's the same as social justice or that's the same as fill in the blank? Yeah. A part of it is confusion over the meaning of terms. And some of that confusion, I think, is intentionally fostered. For example, I mean, you used the term income redistribution. You said that your friend is in favor of income redistribution. You're against income redistribution. Now, that term distribution comes from the root distribute, right? When we think of somebody distributing something, we think of somebody who has you know, a number of things in his hands, and he's handing them out to various different people. He is distributing them. Well, that's really not what happens in terms of people receiving income. When people receive income, they are being paid for products that they've sold or for labor that they have sold. Income is what you earn. And there's nobody sort of distributing that. There are various people earning it, and they're earning it as they sell their products or their labor to various different people, not to some one central person who then distributes it all. So to speak of income redistribution is to confuse the two notions of earning an income on the one hand and having an income distributed to one or having wealth distributed to one. And in the latter case, instead of having mutually beneficial trade going on, you are lumping together the incomes of a bunch of different people as they've earned them in various ways. And then you are taking that and 
redistributing it. You are now handing it out to various people with very little regard to who earned what. And that's a completely different idea. And it's as we allowed that kind of vocabulary to take over that we found it so easy for people to be hoodwinked into embracing this and seeing it as somehow a matter of justice. And then, of course, too, there's the problem that people tend not to define justice very carefully. And that's really the burden of my booklet, Social Justice Versus Biblical Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and Gospel. I want to get to that. Let me ask you a question here. And again, trying to help me even on my rails. I want to talk about the pro-life issue a little bit. I was the one that injected social justice a bit early. But nomenclature to me is huge. And I often preach this literally in messages. I go, you've got to be aware of nomenclature. Once you start using terms and redefining them, we could just be very briefly illustrate pro-life and pro-abortion to Mm pro-life and pro-choice. And there's a lot of tentacles that would go in those directions. But when we change the nomenclature, it softens the argument. The other problem we're seeing, and I would use African-American vis-a-vis black, there was a time when as a white person, I could not say black. I was supposed to say African-American. Now we're seeing sort of a resurgence of saying black, Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. So nomenclature is very hard to keep up with. Now, With that in mind, help me, because so much of social media is driving this discussion. And I'm convinced if people are interacting on social media, they're not reading. They have no substantial, even a pamphlet, they have no substantial understanding of how these arguments have changed and morphed. Am I wrong? Do I need clarification here? Well, I think you're dead right. So let's just take the term pro-life itself. In my booklet, title is How Does the Creation Care Movement Threaten the Pro-Life Movement? I start off early on by actually citing the definitions of the term pro-life from a number of different very standard dictionaries, Merriam-Webster, Cambridge, Collins, Oxford, and so on. And every single one of them, even Wikipedia, (laughs) defines pro-life fundamentally as anti-abortion opposition to abortion. Some of them will say, yes, and the term can expand to include opposition to other procedures that depend on doing abortion, such as fetal tissue research. So pro-life would apply to that because, well, you have to do an abortion to get the tissue to do fetal tissue research. But anti-abortion, opposition to abortion, in all of the standard definitions of the dictionaries, is continuously, constantly tied to opposition to abortion. That's the meaning of pro-life in the dictionaries. And the dictionaries come up with these definitions because dictionary editors observe how a term is used widely in a population over a period of time. So that's the dictionary definition of pro-life. It is not opposition to things that might provide some heightened risk of hunger or disease or injury, but are not the intentional killing of a human being. Those things would not come under the standard dictionary definition of pro-life. And so when folks like Ron Sider and Richard Mao and the others who have signed the statement, pro-life evangelicals for Biden, 
when they use that to refer to their desire to reduce poverty, to reduce smoking, to reduce environmental pollution, now, all of those things, by the way, I'm very much in favor of reducing. <laughs> you know, Believe me, I am, and sure. I am because they're harmful to human beings, as well as dishonoring to God in terms of harming his creation. But none of those involves the intentional killing of human beings. And so when they use pro-life to describe their position, what they're doing is not just what stealing a term that properly doesn't apply to what they're saying. They are then also but watering down the meaning of that term in social discourse. And the consequence is many people then don't recognize the difference between opposing abortion, the intentional killing of a human being on the one hand, and favoring increased income for the poor, which does not have anything to do with intentionally killing human beings. That's a very serious loss in ethical understanding. Not only is it a loss in ethical understanding, it's also a loss in practical outcomes. Because if we really know what pro-life means, what the pro-life movement is, namely opposition to abortion, and we really care about opposing abortion, then we know where to put our donations to various nonprofits that work toward that end. But if now another organization can come in and say, we're pro-life too, give to us because we are pro-life, then we become confused. Well, we think that what that means is that this organization is opposing abortion. When in reality, what it's doing is fighting for reduction of global warming by the reduction of the use of fossil fuels, which in turn has the effect of raising energy prices, which leads to more energy poverty, which actually leads to more deaths. Now, not intentionally, but the actual outcome is the opposite of what the folks are looking for. So what happens is that you then you threaten the pro-life movement by siphoning off a lot of the support that it might otherwise have, and that means we reduce the odds, the chances of putting more restrictions on abortion in American law. I interviewed Dr. James Tour out of Rice University some time ago yes. on climate change. You were also part of that program we did, and one of the things he enumerated was from you know the mining of lithium, the shipping of lithium, the production yes. of lithium, converting it into batteries, packaging, putting it back on ships, distributing it. Yep. You know, by the time you've done all that, I think the number was thirty thousand miles before the car broke even. But he said we've not taken into account, if my memory serves, we've not taken into account we're still charging these with fossil fuel energy. And yes, more often than not, right. fossil fuel energy provides 85% of all the energy consumed in the world right now. Wind and solar together provide a little less than 3%. Well, so I, I if think, you are charging your electric car, you're using fossil the odds fuels, are yeah. 85 to 3 <laughs> that you're getting it from fossil fuels. Well, I think I mentioned to you, I think it was Boone Powell who said, I've lost more money on wind and solar than anybody. It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. at the end of the day, my point simply is, Back to nomenclature, we've got you know climate change. That sounds like such a good thing. We want clean air. We want clean water. And you point this out in your early materials on Cornwall. Of course we want clean water. Of course we want clean air. 
I heard a union official this morning on the news out of Pennsylvania say, we are exceeding the climate restrictions that the Paris Accord had in Pennsylvania alone mm-hmm. without any government yeah. regulation. So Right, because people are looking for the least expensive energy sources that will work well, and they're finding that natural gas works better than coal and is cheaper than coal at this point. And, and very available natural gas right now. has fewer yeah. CO2 emissions. Yeah. But besides that, by the way, and I hope that we will go back to our pro-life I'm sorry. social justice. <laughs> the stream of consciousness. That, I'm excited, Cal. <laughs> but besides that, every single one of these what are called criteria pollutants okay. uh, measured by the Environmental Protection Agency has been falling in terms of annual emissions in the United States almost all of them for more than 60 years, every one of them for at least the last 30 years. And that has continued over the last four years during the Trump administration. Now, those are pollutants that actually can do direct harm to human health. Carbon monoxide, lead, sulfur dioxide, ozone, ground-level ozone, all of those can do direct harm to human health. Carbon dioxide, by contrast cannot harm human health until it's at a concentration exceeding about 10,000 parts per million in the air that we breathe. And then only if we continue breathing that for quite a few hours straight. But carbon dioxide is absolutely essential to all plant life and consequently to the production of all food. And the more CO2 there is in the atmosphere, the better the plants grow. Well, you know, we don't need to worry about getting up to 10,000 parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. We're right now at about 420 parts per million. And indeed, we could burn all the fossil fuels in the earth and not be able to push CO2 concentration up beyond about two or 3,000 parts per million. Wow. Wow. I'm going to oblige you. We're going to go back to talking about (laughs) it's your host problem, not yours. So I want to read from one page of your pamphlet. You're citing, you say, in the searches you did on pro-life, you came across Mm -hmm. EEN, which is the Evangelical, let me get it straight here. Environmental Network. Thank you. And this was from under Barack Obama and his EPA, quote, to develop regulations for methane pollution from existing oil and gas. He continued, as pro-life Christians, we have a special concern for the unborn. We want the unborn and those yet to be born to have a world free of dangerous climate change. Boy, Cal, he's got me, right? I'm hooked, right? (laughs) Yet today, from or natural gas infrastructure, large amounts of methane are being released, as you just noted, a climate pollutant 86 times stronger than carbon dioxide at a trapping heat of over a 20-year time frame. And it is what we do over the next 20 years that will determine whether our struggle to overcome climate change will be won or lost. That is why reducing methane pollution is morally strategic. Help me with this, Cal. It is morally strategic, they would say, as a pro-life issue. Now, there are How do we get of- there? What a logic. <laughs> Goodness. Well... <laughs> First off, of course, there is the assumption woven right into the phrase dangerous climate change. Well, golly, I'm against dangerous climate change too. (laughs) But it's just assumed right into the term. What if climate change that is actually driven by human activity isn't dangerous? But you see how the conclusion of that question, the answer to that question, 
was just woven right into the whole thing from the start, and you didn't get to ask that question. So that's part of the problem. But then besides that, they mentioned that methane is many times more powerful as a greenhouse gas, and the more technical term is infrared absorbing gas, than carbon dioxide. That is true. But methane constitutes a much, much smaller proportion of the atmosphere than does carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is about 40 thousandths of 1% of the atmosphere. Methane is about 1 60th of that. And it is measured not in parts per million, but in parts per billion. And while it is more powerful molecule per molecule, it is a tiny fraction of carbon dioxide's contribution to infrared absorption, that is, to the absorbing of heat that's reflecting from the surface of the Earth back out towards space and re-radiating that, some of it coming back down toward the surface. Carbon dioxide is many times more powerful because it is so much more common in the atmosphere. So there are those problems, as well as the problem that they're just assuming that whatever climate change methane could drive would be dangerous. And in fact, the best empirical evidence, and that is as opposed to models, mathematical models of the climate system, the best empirical evidence is that, in fact, the warming that could be caused by human activity in emitting carbon dioxide and methane and several other infrared-absorbing gases, that warming is so small as not to be significantly harmful to human beings. And, in fact, it has plenty of positive effects to offset that, not to mention the positive effect of better plant growth from all the added carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, resulting in more food for everything that eats plants or eats something that does eat plants. Where did we get off on this, you know, let's annihilate all the cattle breeding because of, you know, methane production and pig farms because of methane production. This is available as you're articulating it. It's a silly question, but how did this become such a vitriolic discussion that, you know, well, of course, we've got to get rid of cattle processing and poultry processing and pig processing because it produces too much methane. Well, I guess it depends partly on how deep you want to go, both in theory and in history. But most of the environmental movement is driven by the idea that human population on the earth is too big, that because of it, we are using up the resources of the earth and we'll soon run out of them, and therefore we need to reduce human population. Well, the problem is that human beings live long and healthy when they have abundant, affordable energy, which in turn enables them to produce far more of food and clothing and shelter and medical care and transportation and so on than they could without abundant, affordable, reliable energy. And so if you want to pare back human population, you want to try to tie it to something that is perceived as dangerous. The idea that we were running out of resources rapidly, running out of oil, running out of various different metals that we extract from the earth through mining, running out of forest land and so on. The idea that we were stripping the earth of resources has run into a major problem over the last 40 or 50 years. And that is that more and more research has shown that all of the resources that we extract from the earth, whether mineral or vegetable or animal, all of the resources we extract from the earth 
are becoming less scarce, not more scarce over time. We know that because their inflation-adjusted prices are falling. There's actually only one resource that's becoming more scarce, not less over time, and that's human beings. We know that because their price, that is the average wage of labor, is rising over time. So people are becoming more scarce as their price shows, whereas all the other resources are becoming less scarce. And the reason for that is that people make resources. People use their God-given minds and hands to transform things from raw materials into resources. And the better we get at doing that, the better we reflect the image of God in that respect. Well, so if you can't then fight human population growth on the grounds that we're running out of resources, you have to come up with some other grounds instead. And basically climate change or more properly termed man-made global warming has become the new excuse, the new avenue for fighting population growth. And that in turn comes from a deeper fear regarding human beings, partly from Thomas Robert Malthus, a Presbyterian minister and something of an amateur economist in the late 18th century. But ultimately, where does it come from? Well, it comes ultimately from Satan, who hates God, but he can't attack God directly because, after all, God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom, his power, his justice, his holiness, his goodness, his truth, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism question four puts it. So, you know, he can't attack God directly, so he attacks God's representative, his image instead, and that is human beings. In the first booklet that you have just released on how does the creation care movement threaten the pro-life movement, you're essentially going through this document and this presentation from the... um, The Evangelical Environmental Network. I know it's impossible to, you know, analyze people's motives, you know, down to, you know, being determinative, but what's the energy behind this, Cal? In my estimation, in my view, they're winning this argument. What's the energy behind it? What's the motivation behind it? I actually typically try to avoid as much as possible speculating as to people. I know, and I prefaced it that way. (laughs) Yet, yet there's some energy. Part of what I do is I apply Philippians 2.3, which says in some translations anyway, and this is a legitimate translation of the Greek word that's used. Well, please don't use an illegitimate one. (laughs) Consider others better than yourselves. What I gain from that is that I should imagine that I have done what I am criticizing that another person did, and then I should try to figure out what would be the best motive I could have had for doing that. And then I should assume that the other person had a better motive. That way, I'm not going to be just attacking people's motives. It's really crucial that instead we consider truth, we consider real consequences, We may have a lot of passion, but we have to set the passion aside for a while to carefully investigate the facts. And then once we understand the facts well, we can bring our passion back in and it can be well-directed, well-targeted. Otherwise, we're likely to contribute to the paving stones of hell, which are called good intentions. (laughs) You know, hell is paved with good intentions. So, I try to just avoid speaking in terms of people's motives when I disagree with what they're doing. And for the most part, you know, I would say the people behind the Evangelical Environmental Network, including their top leaders, these are well-intentioned people. They really do think that what they're advising 
is going to help. But I think they're just simply mistaken on the facts, okay. Okay. and we need to get back to facts. That's a good Christian answer that I wouldn't give, but you're a better Christian than me. So, <laughs> Well, I may not be such a great theologian because, of course, that answer kind of neglects the doctrine of sin. <laughs> and that is that you know, a lot of people do do things with very bad motives, but in the absence of really concrete evidence of the bad motives— I just feel like it's my yeah, yeah, that's good counsel. to I mean, assume good motives. We're in such a knee-jerk world with social media, though, and instantaneous information oh. is flash paper that's, you know, so often wrong. I love your quoting of Walter Williams, but let's switch gears. Let's talk about your other book, Social Justice Versus Biblical Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and the gospel, and we will have in the show notes the links where you can access both of these books that Calvin has just released. This is a big issue, and I'm seeing it in my own church. I see it, and I don't want to be age discriminatory, but there seems to be embracing of this more so with our younger Christian population than, again, those of us old guys. Let's talk about, you've outlined this booklet. You obviously don't like young people. I love young people. I'm just frustrated, Cal, and I don't know how to help them. My daughter who works with me says, Dad, you got to help people. You just can't just criticize them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Part of the answer really comes from a quip that Winston Churchill made once. He said something along these lines, you know, if you're not a liberal in your 20s, right. it's because you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative in your 30s, it's because you have, have no, no brain. Now, that's a little patronizing, but here's what I think is the legitimate way of talking about that. That is that young people, it's natural to develop compassion, I believe. And in our compassion, we see people suffering, and right away, automatically, we want to see that suffering reduced. We want to see these people lifted out of the suffering. That's compassion. That and is if a I perfectly can inject, good motive. And if I can inject, they have a great heart as you Absolutely. quote, and they see something and their parents haven't done anything. And the anecdote that I use is pulling up to an intersection with my two youngest children in the car. And there's a person begging or, you know, panhandling for money. And they want me to give this person money. And I try to use it as a teaching opportunity and say, guys, I would gladly help a person, but my concern is if I give that person five or ten dollars, it's going to be a bottle of wine that they're going to, you know, anesthetize their pain with. We're not helping them, but dad, and they get all amped yeah. up when they're young. So illustratively, yeah. we see that, and yet, you know, as you get older, perhaps, or you're maybe just maturing, you see the difference between enabling someone versus truly helping them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, my point is basically this, that it doesn't take much time at all to develop compassion. What okay. takes time is developing knowledge of the actual consequences of various actions. You make reference to, okay, so suppose I give this person $5 and she goes out and buys a bottle of wine and gets drunk. That hasn't helped her, has it? Might have been a whole lot better if I could have pulled over and said, hey, I have some dishwashing to be done at home. Will you come and if you'll wash those dishes for us, I'll pay you $5 for that. Then she's learning some self-respect, some work, some exchange of value for value and so on. But it takes time to see actual consequences of actions. And by definition, 
young people haven't had as much of that as older people have had. And that's not some terrible moral failure on their part. It's just just the real world in which we live. So, you know, the social justice movement, I think, is driven by compassion, the desire to see people who lack adequate education or health care or things of that sort gain more of that. And that's a very good thing to desire. What it lacks is the, well, two things. One, a proper biblical definition of justice, and two, an understanding of the actual consequences of the various policies that they want to use to improve the lot of those who are poor or ill or whatever. In your book, right at the outset, you discuss how do we define justice from a biblical foundation, and you talk about some key passages. Give us a little insight, a little bit of a hint as to where you're going with this. Well, what I do is I, and this booklet, of course, gives just kind of the tip of the iceberg, but what I do there is I summarize the findings of my having carefully examined every single use of every Hebrew and Greek term that gets translated as justice or just or righteousness or right, sometimes case, as in a law case, a lawsuit, things like that. I carefully examined every use of all of those terms in the Old and New Testaments to try to see what do they mean? What's their usage in all those places? And that investigation, which actually took me many months back in the mid-1980s, and I've returned to it many times since then, that investigation led me to summarize what the Bible means by justice this way. Justice means rendering impartially and proportionally to everyone his due in conformity with the righteous standard of God's moral law. So we see impartiality, proportionality, desert, what is due, and conformity with a standard, the standard of God's law. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 21, we read about different penalties for different crimes. We don't do a slap on the wrist for manslaughter or murder, but neither do we execute somebody for shoplifting, for stealing a sheep or something like that. We have a variety of different punishments for different crimes. We also have a variety of different rewards for different actions. And that's the notion of proportionality. We also see, for example, in Leviticus 19.15, that we are not supposed to be partial to a poor person in his dispute or to you know, give in to the demands of wealthy persons in a dispute. That's impartiality. Rather, we are to render what is due, and we find out what is due by comparing behavior, conduct, with the moral requirements of God's law. So if we understand justice to be that, then the notion that somehow or other social justice requires some degree of equality of outcome or even equality of opportunity suddenly we realize that those two ideas are actually contrary to the biblical meaning of justice. Equality of outcome is most obviously so. If you treat everybody the same way, regardless whether he is a murderer or she is a person who has sacrificed herself for years helping the poor, if you treat those two people the same way, then 
you are actually doing an injustice. You are not rendering to them what is due, and you are showing partiality. You're showing favoritism to the fellow who deserves such you know, punishment, and you're showing partiality against the gal who has given up herself for the sake of others. Likewise, somebody who has studied long and hard for a test and another student who has just kind of breezed by, they both take the test. If the teacher adds up their scores and divides by two and gives them both the same result, I think everybody recognizes that that is unjust. But when different people do different things economically, Some of them study hard and really gain valuable skills. Other people don't study so hard. Some people work long hours. Other people work short hours and so on. Somehow or other, the idea comes up that when their incomes differ, somehow or other that's unjust. No, it's not unjust. It reflects what is due. And to use the power of the state to force the taking of wealth from some who earn it to give it to others who haven't earned it, well, that is unjust because it is partiality. It's playing favorites. So unfortunately, the social justice movement wrongly defines justice and therefore undermines true social relationships. But it also undermines the gospel because, frankly, we cannot understand grace rightly if we do not understand justice rightly. What you and I, Michael, has, I know I'm a sinner and I assume you are too. Amen. First what, in line. What you and I deserve from God is hell, is eternal damnation. What he gives to us by his amazing grace is forgiveness, justification, the declaration that we are righteous in his sight. And he gives that to us because he credits to us the righteousness of Christ. And we receive that not by doing some special works by which presumably we would earn it, because as Romans chapter 3 says, no flesh will be justified by the works of the law. We receive it by faith alone. If we misunderstand justice, we're going to misunderstand the gospel, because the gospel is that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you've turned justice into a special sort of grace, then you lose all the understanding of that. And that's very, very serious. Let's get real specific in the few moments we have left. We have seen atrocious things on television, on video, on YouTube, on however people garner quote, news, close quote, information these days of whether it's an African-American person being beaten by a police officer, being killed by a police officer. These are inflammatory. They're unexplicable based on a small video bite. And this, of course, infuriates, back to your definition, Mm -hmm. those that are driven by compassion. So help us out, Cal. How do we navigate Well, we ought to be infuriated by every instance of really vicious injustice. There are all sorts of little injustices that probably ought not to infuriate us. I mean, we ought to notice them and we ought to try to correct them. But really vicious things like, you know, an unjustified police beating of some person, we ought to be infuriated by that. But it's really important 
again, for us to step back and make sure that we have our facts right, not only in terms of that one individual case, were there things that happened off camera that we didn't get to see, were there extenuating circumstances and so on, but also when it comes to claims about this sort of thing being rampant in our society. And there we really need to get to hard data, solid numbers. And actually in America, over the last 40 years or so, the odds of your being shot or killed by a policeman when you are unarmed and not a threat to that policeman are higher if you are white than if you are black. Now, that's just hard data. It's just the numbers. And I'm not just talking that more whites suffer that. I'm talking that it happens in a higher percentage of the encounters between whites and police than between blacks and police. So we have to step back, take a deep breath, look hard at the figures, and then figure out what's the real problem here. Is it widespread police brutality toward blacks in America? Or is it that, you know, in specific instances, a policeman has gone beyond the pale? And then, of course, we need to deal with that policeman carefully. But to condemn all police as somehow or other systemically racist, that goes contrary to the numbers. And it's also injustice because justice says we're supposed to render to people what is due. Well, those who have not done that sort of thing are not due condemnation for it. Again, help out those driven by compassion. Chances are, I know this is going to break your heart, they're not going to read your booklets. (laughs) Chances are they're not going to listen to your podcast and mine. But in the communication and relational network we all have, as believers, we have an opportunity to try to say, I tire of the word engagement, but to engage, we have an opportunity to say, you know, we need to take a pause on this. And none of us would disagree, hopefully, that any injustice or any, you know, violent action by those in authority against anyone, no matter their race, needs to be, you know, carefully evaluated. I mean, we need to say, wait, let's throw a yellow flag on this and stop and see what actually happened. But it seems like we are, I heard a term the other day and my memory fails, but this pundit was saying those that are pro-Trump, for example, are afraid to say such words because of the backlash and the vitriol they will receive. And I think at some level, these issues we're talking about, climate change, pro-life, social Mm -hmm. justice, we feel on our heels that we can't talk about this without, you know, embracing for, you know, they're going to come after us and burn our house down. Yeah. You know, there's a whole lot of need for courage, just simple courage. Mm -hmm. And I'll make a quick reference here to an interesting episode that happened between a friend of mine who is an environmental economist in Canada and a member of the Canadian Parliament. This friend, Ross McKittrick, had written an article in which he showed some of the problems in the science behind the idea of dangerous man-made global warming. And a member of parliament had tweeted a little bit of his article, and she then came under a firestorm of criticism over Twitter and various other social media. 
And ultimately, she removed the tweet. He wrote to her, refuting with solid facts every different claim that had been made against what he had written in his article, and particularly what she had tweeted. And there was no question about it. I mean, this was, you know, just slam dunk in terms of the facts. But she was unwilling to restore her tweet. Hmm. And Shortly after that, Ross McKittrick, the economist, was talking with another faculty member at his university, the University of Guelph in Ontario. And this faculty member was an immigrant from a country that had been under communist rule previously, an Eastern European country. And this faculty member said, this is really frightening because people think that the silence of so many folks in communist countries toward communist demands was forced upon us by the movers behind communism. He said, no, it wasn't. We embraced political correctness by simply not having the courage to speak the truth in opposition to threatened violence. He said, we enslaved ourselves. And he said, what's frightening is that I see the same thing happening now in Canada. And I see the same thing happening now in the United States. I mean, you've already raised the issue of people who support Donald Trump. How many people who support Joe Biden are worried that if they put a Biden bumper sticker on their car, the car will get keyed? Mm-hmm. But how many people who support Donald Trump have that same worry? I think the answer is pretty well obvious to all of us. This is indicative of a society that has lost the capacity for civil discourse. And it's something that we need to pray will be renewed. And we need to practice its renewal, which means that when we post something on Facebook or Twitter or some other social media, and people, you know, shower us with a whole bunch of angry responses. Our responses need to be courteous, they need to be peaceable, and they need to be as factual as possible, and indeed woven with respect for those who disagree with us. We have to win by example, as well as by good, solid reasoning. Dr. E. Calvin Beisner, author of two recent booklets that we will have in the show notes where you can access How Does the Creation Care Movement Threaten the Pro-Life Movement and Social Justice versus Biblical Justice. Cal, it's always a privilege, truly an honor to have you on the broadcast. I hope you'll come back and appreciate your time, your conscientiousness, your scholarship, your entire approach with the way you can you know, engage these issues, and we learn from you. We appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you very much, Michael. It's an honor for me to be with you. For both of these booklets, Social Justice versus Biblical Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and Gospel, and then the other one titled, How Does the Creation Care Movement Threaten the Pro-Life Movement? In the case of either one of those booklets, The Cornwall Alliance will, as a way of saying thank you for a 100% tax-deductible donation of any size, no matter how small, of course, (laughs) we'd appreciate it if it were generous, but literally any size, we will send one or the other of these completely free to the donor. All people need to do to request that is go to cornwallalliance.org. That's cornwallalliance.org. 
click on the donate button, fill out your donation, and then in the comments field, write in either social justice or pro-life. If you write in either one of those, we will send that appropriate booklet out to you for free. That's great. And again, we'll have that right in the show notes. So if you weren't able to copy down what Dr. Beister just shared with you, it'll be right below the program. So just scroll down there and click and it will take you right to the Cornwall Alliance. Again, sir, thanks for your time, blessings, and look forward to our next conversation. Likewise to you. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.